You're listening to Feral Attraction. Hosted by Metrico and Vero the Science Collie. On this week's show, we open with a recap of Vero's experience at TFF. We also discuss an article on how porn may be shaping our sexual expectations. Our main topic is on maintaining empathy during disagreements by engaging in active listening skills. We close out the show with a question on the etiquette of anal sex. Hello again and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Fear of the Science Collie. So we had a busy week and, well, by we, I mean Vero. Vero, you were at Texas, what is it, Texas Furry Fiesta? That is the name of that convention. Yes, I was in, I was in Dallas, Texas. That was a uh, fun experience. I haven't been to TFF since I think 2015. And they had learned a new hotel, which is gorgeous. And I love those open atrium style of hotels. Marriott's man, they're great for cons. <laughs> you get to see all the furries looking like tilt shifted little animals down there, and it's, it's a good time. <laughs> but yeah, I had a great time down there. I know we actually announced we were going to be doing our episode 100 this week, but we just had too much going on, so we're giving you a little episode 99.5, mm-hmm. uh, another topic show before we get to our big blowout show. Because frankly, I was traveling and Metrico had things going on as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we while I was at the con, uh, I was able to attend actually ten more panels than usual. Because I was there on my lonesome and not with any of my packmates. So having the freedom to be able to go to more panels was really cool. One of them I hit, I actually wanted to talk about a little bit, which was uh, Path Hyena, a former con chair of TFF and friend of the show, uh, ran a panel on being popular in the fandom. Not actually on how to become popular, but actually on the nuts and bolts of like how to be popular responsibly in the fandom. And uh, it was uh, Path Hyena and uh, Matches and uh, Renegade Rue and... Uh, Sunny Dingo, and they all paneled uh, this really uh, awesome uh, topic. And it was really interesting to hear their perspectives on, you know, how to deal with having fans you might not want to have as fans, such as members of the alt-right, and how to cope with, you know, the demands of needing to be always plugged into Twitter and feeling like, you know, there's this fear of missing out and needing to engage and interact in order to kind of maintain your brand and what it's like to be a brand rather than just a person. And so it was actually a really interesting topic. Uh, and I think it was cool that they put that together. And then on Sunday afternoon, uh, I had my panel, which is the Open and Polyamorous Furry Relationships 101, uh, which we've run a number of times. And that went super well. We had over 40 engaged attendees, and we were able to talk and answer questions throughout our entire two-hour time slot, which I love getting that much engagement. So it was fun when people are really wanting to talk about stuff and get their, their polyamory questions addressed. So that was uh, really cool. And we'll be running our panel again. Uh, a few upcoming conventions. Uh, keep an eye out for us at First Squared FWA in Vancouver. That'll be our next panel appearances. Yeah, I mean, it's we have a lot going on. There's a lot in the pipeworks, and it's um, you know just just keep listening for more information about upcoming events. It's we also have them posted on our website at feralattraction.com. I actually updated the events page for the first time in a while. I'm really bad at that because I always forget to do it. But it's actually up to date and has all of our events listed right now. So enjoy that while it lasts, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I probably will forget again, to be honest. But you can always just ask us, too. And we announced everything in our Telegram broadcast channel and on Twitter. So if you want to stay up to date with the the, live up-to-the-minute information, our Mm -hmm. our Telegram broadcast channel 
and Twitter are probably your best bets. And you can link to those from our website as well. Yep. So we do have an actual main part of our top of the show. Um, as much as we would love to listen to Vero Faf on about TFF, we're actually going to talk a little bit about the, the to- what you covered at TFF as our main topic. But Exactly. That's kind of a way I've been retooling the show a little bit oh. as towards talking about active listening and needs and wants. And it's a great way of approaching things. Before we get there, we have an article that came out that I would like to talk about that was actually published by the New York Times Magazine. And uh, the writer, Maggie Jones, wrote this article called What Teenagers Are Learning from Online Porn. And that article introduces itself by saying, American adolescents watch much more pornography than their parents know about, and it's shaping their ideas about pleasure, power, and intimacy. Can they be taught to see it more critically? So uh, this article took this uh, kind of interesting approach to looking at the effects that pornography viewing has on teenagers. It's obviously a very taboo subject because, you know, the party line is that teenagers aren't supposed to be watching porn, right? That's right. But at the same time, as the study reports, more than nine out of 10 uh, teenage boys report watching porn regularly. So clearly there's a disconnect going on between what we say there's supposed to be happening and what is actually happening. And maybe the fact that we're giving porn production studios and remote porn viewing stations to every child in the form of a smartphone has something to do with this. Um, and, and also when you're telling kids you can't have sex, well, they have to, they're going to do something, right? So there's kind of this pressure cooker phenomenon going on that's encouraging pornography viewing amongst teenagers. And so the approach this article takes is how, what do we do about this? Because we're not educating teenagers to consume porn in a healthy or kind of thoughtful way. And they actually talk about a few initiatives that various education educators and sex educators and also just educators in general are putting together to address this issue of how do we educate uh, teenagers about porn. And obviously, there's a very fine line there between encouraging teenagers to have sex and teaching teenagers how to have sex, which very few parents are probably comfortable with, and this idea of viewing porn and consuming it critically. So there's this tension going on that the article addresses, and it's kind of an interesting uh, perspective. Do you have any thoughts on that, Metrico? I mean, you know, when I was growing up, uh, I grew up in the south of the United States in the Bible Belt, and it's my parents were very strange because they didn't want me to learn about sex in school because it was the job of the parents in order to inform their kids as to what proper sexual etiquette is, we'll say. But they also never wanted to talk to me about sex. And so I guess they just assumed that I would either figure out on my own without a you know curriculum or I would just kind of stay this asexual toddler until I died in my, you know, seventies or eighties. It's, it's, there will always be parents. There will always be people who are unable to distinguish that line between encouraging sexual behavior and educating about sexual behavior. And it's really important that that we make that distinction that you can tell people how to have good sex without kind of patting them on the back and saying, all right, go get her champ. You know, it's, it's, 
And I had an ulterior motive for bringing up this article in, in relation to the panel that I just mentioned too, because this is actually an issue that comes up for us occasionally where, you know, I like to run my open and polyamorous furry 101 panel with a, a pretty broad audience. And I, I like it to be listed as a general audience panel at conventions because I feel like educating, you know, people about, you know, communication strategies and, you know, listening to your partner, those are pretty universal things that benefit any, anyone in a relationship. And I'm not encouraging any kind of sexual activity by you know explaining those things, but panels, uh, some unfortunately some panel programming staff kind of get into a, a kind of pearl clutching mindset about our panel and want to list it as an after dark panel simply because we talk about open relationships and polyamory, and that really bothers me on a pretty visceral level. And I think this article is kind of addressing the same kind of cultural zeitgeist that we have to work with of this this tension between sex education and, and encouraging sexual activity, and it's it's a really interesting place to be in as a, as a society and a culture. And I don't think, I don't really think we have a good answer to this. And uh, it's kind of interesting to read an article where you know, educators from Europe and America are all grappling with this issue of how do we, how do we split that hair, you know? And uh, for me personally, I, I, I kind of lean on the side of education being better uh, at the risk of encouraging activity because we kind of know from the way this works that when people, kids understand sex well, they tend to actually have less sex. And we know that from knowing how comprehensive sex ed works, knowing that it actually reduces STI and pregnancy rates a heck of a lot more than absence-only education does, right? So my my theory there is that education is probably going to be the better route to take. But, you know, convincing a bunch of parents that it's okay to let, let their children go to these porn education classes is probably a hard sell in certain, especially certain areas of the country. You know, what's always really bothered me is it's the same people who think that teaching high school students teaching teenagers how to use condoms and how to practice, you know, it's, it's, it's protected sex are the same ones that tend to be anti-abortion, anti, it's, it's, they're like, well, people, poor people need to have less children, but we're also not going to do any education on, on sexual health because it's your fault. And it never made sense that these two things go hand in hand. When, when you have studies that show that comprehensive sexual education prevents STIs, it prevents unwanted teenage pregnancies, and generally speaking, it, it promotes a, a, a more understanding sort of approach to relationships. Because as the, this article details... When you have areas that are low income, that have underprivileged students that are in high school, may not have access to comprehensive sexual education, where do you get your education about sex from? Obviously, it's porn. And porn is not a great educator because even the porn parodies that have educators, I mean, there's one where it's a gay porn and it has a drag queen as the the professor of the class and rather than teach anything useful she just beats people with dildos and then they all fuck like that's not that's not comprehensive sex education it's it's a parody of education that involves sex you can't use that in any capacity porn is a fantasy and we've discussed it many many times on this show before the issue is is that when you are you know, younger, when you are more impressionable, when you have, when, when you lack a certain foundation and you see porn stars just taking it up, whichever hole, deep throating, you know, 
sledgehammer fucking whatever it might be you assume that that is the natural means and the natural way for you to have sex and that's kind of one of the criticisms that uh, the article levies at children or teenagers using porn as, a, as an educational tool because they have no, no other option and it's this idea that porn promotes kind of unhealthy understandings of power dynamics between men and women it promotes um kind of that lack of consent culture it in, in some ways promotes rape culture in that way. And there's also this idea that porn kind of promotes aggressive and rough sex over gentler and more sensual forms of intimacy, right. despite the fact that many people actually do prefer, prefer slow, gentle sex to rough sex. But you don't see slow, gentle sex in uh, porn because it's just not as photogenic, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's if you go to see a superhero movie, if it's all just conversation scenes, you're going to get bored really quick. Yeah, if they were just using nonviolent communication to resolve the problem with the arch-villain, it wouldn't be as interesting of a movie, right? We yeah. have to like destroy Manhattan at least twice. Yeah, I mean, God, <laughs> fuck Manhattan. But, but here's, here's my pushback on that, though. Is it the job of porn to be an educator? Because... Well, I mean, the porn sounds very clearly it's for 18-plus audiences, right? right? But at the same time, no one is really enforcing that because you know ad, ad impressions don't don't care how old you are right that's, that's kind of the dirty secret of the internet right as a former google employee i'm sure you're very aware of that we're not gonna bring that now um i mean let's be real everybody i mean back back in my day like i don't think any porn website was age-gated back when i was growing up I was reading the Nifty archives at 13. I, I personally always preferred reading porn to watching porn. Maybe it's because I am a kind of verbal collie, but that was my introduction to pornography is reading the Nifty archives from like an early age. And that's, that's actually how I learned like it was okay to be gay and that like it's normal to have these desires and, you know, and that's actually one of the positive things that the article mentions about uh, consuming pornography that particularly for people who have uh, more fringe sexual interests and those who are say maybe in the LGBTQ community, that porn can help normalize yeah, some young people's fringe sexual interests and make them feel like they are normal. And that's actually a really positive thing that porn can do. But, you know, we have to balance that out with, you know, learning these unhealthy power dynamic ideas. Because, you know, granted, some people do prefer rough sex, but, you know, that's not everyone. And assuming that everyone does just because it's in pornography is not healthy. And that's that's kind of ultimately the point this article is making. You know, and, and I'll also say that there are certain subgenres of porn that are definitely not you know they, they don't promote kind of progressive ideals it's if you look at historically porn that features interracial couples porn that features transgender actresses or actors well and getting back to our cuckolding show i mean as we know from dan savage's recent article most heterosexual cuckolding porn is very heavily mm -hmm. racially overtoned mm -hmm. and that that can promote some pretty damaging ideas about race race you know relations and you know well, and even beyond that it's it's a lot of the language that is used sort of goes into refine uh, or it's not super positive all the time and there we don't necessarily want to normalize slurs against transgender individuals slurs against people of color because i saw it in a porn and when this guy was deep dicking another dude's wife he said the n-word so it must be okay if i'm having no no honey ha honey no 
And hard facials, by the way, hurt. Your eyes really burn. Yeah. It's actually not that fun for most people. Yeah. It, you know, porn stars do it because they get paid a lot to do it. But your girlfriend probably isn't going to want to get cum in her eye every night. Just, just, as a, just a pro tip there. <laughs> so, well, there is a lot of good that can come from that. Um, uh, porn in general. It's, it's, you do see a lot of, especially for BDSM, a lot of professional BDSM porn production companies go a long way in order to show the setup the they have a pre-interview they'll do the scene they'll have some aftercare and an after interview and while the scene might be very intense it might involve extensive rope play extensive flogging whatever it might be at the end of everything you see hey this was all consensual this was all agreed on and everybody had a good time mainstream porn you don't see that it's oh hey i i have a delivery for pizza oh no you don't have any money oh well i hope you ordered it with extra meat and then he pulls his dick out and then they fuck and then the scene ends there's very little uh foreplay Mm -hmm. there's not any warming anyone up there's not any you know using fingers or toys to make sure somebody's ready for penetration Mm -hmm. you don't see that prep that i guarantee you the porn stars are doing off scene Mm -hmm. right they often have these people called fluffers (laughs) who are off stage to make sure everybody's turned on you know you don't you don't benefit from that when you're in your own bedroom right see but you don't you don't realize that this stuff is going into what's what's on the screen if you're not Again, being a more thoughtful consumer of pornography. Mm-hmm. So, if you know, if you want to give a chance to read this article, uh, we're going to link to it in our show notes. It's a re- it's mm-hmm. a good article. It's a fairly lengthy article, yeah. and they they actually interview some teenagers and actually talk to them about their perceptions of porn. Which I thought was really progressive of the New York Times to do, mm-hmm. frankly. Um, but it was a, a pretty cool article, honestly. And so, check it out if you're interested. And honestly, like, I could talk about this for for an entire show, and maybe we end up doing a show in the future just about. Um, um, what, 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 what will we call it? Porn intelligence, porn education, being perceptive about porn. Yeah. <laughs> I like alliteration. I, I, feel, I feel like that will be, you know, a, a good sort of because I have thoughts, Vero. I have thoughts. I think we both have thoughts. I think it might be why we have a podcast. So, but. That being said, speaking of, I think we'll probably move into yeah. our main topic, if that's all right. Yeah, no. So uh, just to, just to uh, address the fact that we are releasing on Valentine's Day, we're not ignorant of that fact. Uh, we're not we're not going to try to segue into our main topic by by, by mentioning that. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> frankly, the thing about Valentine's Day that I think is really important is people get expectations in their head that come again societally programmed expectations. But how the holiday is supposed to go, right? You go out for this romantic candle dinner and you come back and you have all this intimacy and romance and maybe you know there's some really nice passionate love making and you know this is this is the valentine's day script right the thing is oftentimes the script doesn't quite work out and this is a case where it's really important to communicate your expectations with your partners about you know how you would like the holiday to go and maybe you make some dinner reservations and all of that but it's also really important i think the best piece of advice i can give for making your valentine's day go smoothly is to remain flexible and understanding that things don't always go according to plan. And if you do that, you know, the sex you're having is always better than the sex you thought you were going to have, so long as you're engaged in the moment and are letting yourself enjoy it. If you let yourself be preoccupied about how the sex you're having is deviating from how you thought the sex was going to go, you're probably in for a bad time because you're going to be taking yourself out of the moment and you're not really going to be enjoying your partner, but instead you're going to be lamenting the fact that 
you know, I didn't have the most amazing romantic Valentine's Day ever. And that means my relationship is falling apart. And you can qu- very quickly get down this rabbit hole of, uh, of kind of cognitively distorted thinking about what's going on with your relationship just because your Valentine's Day wasn't this, you know, Hallmark card event, right? And uh, Dan Savage actually also has some really good advice for Valentine's Day. And I like to repeat it every year. And that's to fuck first and then go out to dinner. Because you having that really romantic steak dinner is going to probably leave you feeling a tad bloated and lethargic. And those words are not all that conducive to really hot, steamy, passionate lovemaking. So if you are going to be planning to be sexual with your partner, it's probably a good idea to have dessert and then and then get your dinner. Uh, so maybe some afternoon delight in that situation. So that would be our recommendation. Make your dinner plan. Just push them back a couple hours. Maybe go out for a late dinner. And then, you know, get your get your hanky panky out of the way so that you have that pressure taken off of you and can actually just enjoy the dinner without there being a lot of kind of expectations and uh, stuff kind of loaded onto that. And, you know, kind of echoing a little bit more broadly, the, the whole don't feel so torn up that the sex that you're having isn't as good as you played it up to be. The, the thing with holidays, especially romantic holidays, is that you're building memories for the future. And so when things don't go according to plan, you booked a reservation at a restaurant and they lost it. You can throw a fit or you can sort of keep in the back of your mind that, hey, it's going to be okay. If And this is, this is kind of the test that, that I put to myself and people that I date. If something goes wrong on an important holiday like Valentine's Day, which I, I don't really care about, but most of the people that I've dated have. If if we book a reservation at a fancy restaurant and for whatever reason we're not able to make it, they're not able to honor it, whatever that case might be, would they be okay eating at McDonald's? And if the answer is no, then th- there's a conversation you need to have because Valentine's Day and the time that you spend together aren't about the gifts that you purchase. They aren't about the amount of money that you throw at activities together. Every kiss may begin with K, but you don't have to have a diamond necklace in order to get there. It's all about the memories that you build together. And it's about the type of memories that you want to have to reflect on. Relationships are, quite frankly, sort of nostalgic in nature because we base the health on the relationship by the memories that we cultivate. And what's important is that when things go wrong, especially during Valentine's Day, because everybody's super high stressed about it, you don't stress out about it. You say, okay, well, that didn't work out, but hey, we could go home and, you know, we could cook something together. We could do this other activity. So my recommendation, plan multiple outs. If something goes wrong, if you fuck so much, you miss that reservation, what do you think you're going to do? Just keep it in the back of your mind. Do a little bit of disaster mitigation because Valentine's Day, it has the potential to be a blow up of massive proportions. Don't overhype it. Don't overstress it. Don't, you know, really overthink it. Just remember you're here to have fun and you're here as an expression of love. Fuck what Hallmark is telling you. You don't need to buy a card. You just need to say, I love you. So, so don't, don't freak out about Valentine's Day, but yeah, fuck first, then eat. Especially us gay people, gay people talking to you. Do not go to Mexican restaurants and then fuck. Very bad things will happen to you. 
<laughs> yes. I don't care Indeed. about your spice and, and beans are not a great combination, especially if you're on the uh, the like the anal sex yeah. as your your one of your things that you incorporate in your sex mm-hmm. play. Yeah, don't don't eat first. <laughs> you know, stay away stay away from the sriracha sauce. You know, it's it's I don't care how iron your stomach might be, your bowels don't give a shit. Well, I mean they are gonna give a shit. Plenty of them if you go, you know, in that, that particular route, unfortunately. So, you know, fuck first, then go out to eat. If you miss your dinner plans, have fun. Don't worry about buying a lot of expensive stuff if you can't afford it. You know, save up for future investments. And But the investment that you should make most important in your life is the, the spread of love and laughter between you and your, your mate or your mates if you're polyamorous. And, you know, if you're listening to the show a couple of days late and you're, you know, you already had your Valentine's Day, maybe it didn't go all according to plan. Hopefully hearing this makes you feel a little bit better because most people's Valentine's Day doesn't go entirely according to plan. And that doesn't mean you're broken. It doesn't mean your relationship is failing. It doesn't mean any of those things. It only means that if you tell yourself it does. And it's much healthier for you and for your relationship to be kinder to yourself and tell yourself a, a, a healthier narrative about, you know, how Valentine's Day really isn't. It's an arbitrary date on the calendar. And if things don't all go, go according to plan, you can have a romantic date on the 16th. You know what I mean? And that's that's totally fine. <laughs> yeah, your your expression of love should not come on an arbitrary date. It should be a constant expression throughout the course of your relationship. So, you know, it's 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 if you can't do it on the 14th, do it on the 15th or the 16th or every other day of the year. Absolutely. You know, affirmation and expressing to your partner why you appreciate and love them is something you can incorporate into your daily life. You don't need to save that for one day mm-hmm. a year. And quite honestly, that's free. So there you go. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's um, Valentine's Day. It, it can be a day of stress. If you're listening to this on Valentine's Day, God bless. Um, I hope you and your partner, if you have one, are listening together maybe. And you can think about memories of the past. Or maybe this is your first Valentine's Day together and you can build positive memories moving forward. Um. Personally, I spend Valentine's Day asleep because I work overnight. So it's pretty great. I get to avoid all of that. It's awesome. I would recommend that 10 out of 10. But we're actually going to get to our main topic. It's it's We realized kind of as we started recording or, or planning to record. Oh, shit. Oh, we're releasing shit. on Valentine's Day. <laughs> Crap, we're releasing this on the 14th. Oh, that's an important day. We should probably, yeah. So, um, yeah, our bad on that one. We just, again, we've been so busy with travel. Valentine's Day kind of snuck up on us, to be honest. So, but I mean, at the end of the day, though, it's, it's Valentine's Day, have fun. But one yeah. thing, it's, it should be it should be fun. If it stops being fun, then why, why are you doing yeah. it? Right. And that's kind of that. It's actually a great segue into our main topic, which is listening to your own needs and wants and realizing why you're doing the things you're doing and kind of trying to determine whether the things that you're doing are actually in support of your actual true needs and wants. So this show is going to be all about figuring out what your needs and wants are and then communicating those needs and wants to your partner while maintaining an empathetic connection to your partner or partners. And this is actually a topic that I've kind of been building and building is kind of being the central theme of my panel as I've done the panel a number of times. I've realized that the best way to kind of put hang the panel on a common thread is really through empathy, nonviolent communication, active listening, and understanding your needs and wants. 
Basically, all of those things that I just said are the same thing in different words. And we've covered this topic in different ways in other previous shows. In fact, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to our episodes on nonviolent communication and empathy, because that's where a lot of this material comes from. We're putting a slightly different spin on it this week to really emphasize the importance of active listening. So you say, so what you're saying is that you're hanging, like, like the central hang of the of your panel moving forward is going to be active listening and things of that nature. So my question to you: Would you say that the panel is well hung? <laughs> uh yeah, let's let's say that it is. I, I'm willing to accept but, that. I mean, to be fair, a lot of what we've been saying, especially when it comes to active listening, it plays an important role in you know positive communication skills. It really does, and you know, people neglect the listening side of communication mm-hmm. so much; it's completely undervalued, and it's actually the more important component of communication. So that's really why I wanted to approach it from that point of view. It's kind of from the point of view of the listening side rather than the, the actual talking side. Because most people, you know, we've talked ad nauseum about, about the, the talking part, about how to communicate your, your own needs and wants. But being able to accept those from your partner empathetically is actually, in some cases, a much harder thing to do, especially during times of stress and conflict, right? And that's when it's most important to maintain those active listening skills to, to you know, prevent an, a minor disagreement from blowing up into an argument or a genuine fight, right? You know, you can you can have a very minor disagreement about who's going to take the trash out, blow up into, you know, a relationship-ending argument if you don't practice these skills well. I mean, I've seen it happen, and it, it can be really absurd how this tiny little issue can just mushroom, right? And it suddenly it's it's real bad, and it's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it's I've, I've observed this far too many times, and it sounds absolutely ludicrous, but... Like you, you see arguments about cleaning the bathroom turning into almost like a Star Wars esque battle for supremacy, where one person is spun into the Palpatine and you know pointing at the bathroom, just going, "Do it, do it, clean it, do it." And then you have like the Luke Skywalker, who's just like, "I'm just gonna light it on fire. I don't fucking care. This is bullshit." <laughs> so I mean, it, it's 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 important that. You can use I statements and nonviolent communication as much uh, until the cows come home. But that doesn't do anything for you if your partner isn't exactly. listening. Exactly, right? and that's the key thing. So in this case, put your put yourself in the in the position of being the person who's listening and and think about how you can listen more effectively. I'm going to provide a few strategies that really enhance active listening and that essentially will do go really far in making your partner feel understood. And, you know, I talk about this in my panel all the time. These things sound really stupid, but they actually work. And I realize that it sounds way, super simple and it sounds like this This is way, this doesn't make any sense. But I guarantee if you try it, it's going to work. And that's simply to parrot statements back to your mate. And you might think this sounds really dumb, but when you actually just repeat back what you've just heard, you'd go really far in establishing an empathetic connection between you and the person you're talking to. It can be as simple as saying, you know, I heard you say, bleh, am I understanding you correctly, right? This is a great way to ensure that you're not just playing a game of telephone with your partner or your partners, right? Sometimes when we speak, especially if we're heated or we're we're not really speaking very carefully, we're kind of just, you know, letting it all out because something upset us. We're getting into a very reactive state and we don't really think about how what we're saying might come across, so when you say you next to repeat back to your partner what you've just heard them say, you give them a chance to moderate whatever they've just said, 
because maybe their filter is now going to kick in, you know, if they didn't have their filter engaged when they first said whatever inflammatory statement they just made, giving them the chance to hear what they just said and then to, you know, to, to clarify whether you're understanding what they meant can be really, really powerful. So, you know, another case would be, you know, did you mean to hurt me when you said X rather than assuming that the person intended to hurt you? Because oftentimes when somebody's upset about something, they're not actually trying to wound their partner, but they're simply so frustrated that it comes out in a wounding way, right? But if we focus on the fact that we're being wounded, we're not actually hearing the message that our partner is communicating. And that's the part that ends up kind of making the conversation devolve or escalate, right? So if, I, if I'm upset because you're not doing the dishes and I say, you're such a lazy son of a bitch, you never do the dishes and I'm always doing this and you just focus on the fact that they called me a lazy son of a bitch, you've missed the entire point of the, of the issue, right? And you're now focused on what is essentially a meta argument where you're probably going to become defensive and say, I'm not lazy and I do this and this and this, right? But here's the thing, you've not actually engaged with what your partner just said, right? You just changed the focus to being about yourself and you're no longer focused on them, right? This is uh, kind of something that Marshall Rosenberg talks about a lot through his nonviolent communication education, right? And that's the idea that when you're talking to your partner, you really want to stay present with what, what their lived experience is, even if you don't necessarily agree with whatever that experience is, right? You don't, you don't agree that you're lazy. You don't agree that you're a son of a bitch. But that's not the important thing right now. The important thing is that you're actually actually listening to what your partner is trying to communicate to you. And granted, they are not doing a good job of communicating nonviolently. But just because they aren't communicating nonviolently doesn't mean that you can't. And the way that you kind of flip things back around and turn the conversation into being nonviolent again is by engaging these active listening skills. When you tell your partner, hey, I, you know, did you mean to hurt me when you called me a lazy son of a bitch? Because that really hurt. Is that what you meant to say? You're often going to get a response from your partner, well, uh, no, I didn't really mean, that's not what I meant. I just really am upset that you're not doing the dishes, right? And you can kind of refocus the conversation on what's actually important. And then you can engage with, you know, what is it that you need me to be doing differently? That's, you know, that's really what the focus of the conversation ought to be. But it's going to get lost if you focus on the negativity that your partner is spewing at you because they're upset, right? You know, a lot of the times that I use these kinds of statements, um, are when I encounter people who are kind of employing cognitive distortions in, in their line of thinking. And there, there are a few ways that you can go about reconciling things, but I find that you can't reconcile their version of reality and your version of reality. They're two separate stories for the time being. And it's important to understand where they are fully because like you were saying, you can get into meta arguments about, well, that's a straw man. And this, this is, you can get very much so into a meta argument over minor things and you never actually address the core issues. Yeah. The strategy of parroting things back and ensuring that you're understanding the message that you're receiving is essentially just a foolproof way to, to never escalate an argument because it, it prevents you from ever being defensive. Instead of focusing on your own feelings and your own reaction to the situation, you're staying present with your partner and basically playing. Marshall Rosenberg has a really cool phrase for this. He calls it playing with their pain. And it, it's a really kind of powerful phrase. It sounds kind of weird, but you really want to be playing with their pain and not focused on your own. You want to be 
you know, because the idea is to basically to resolve the hurt that your partner is experiencing. And then, of course, you can you can later on, once you've established that empathetic connection where your partner is feeling heard, that's when you can then speak and, and explain your perspective. Because when you've already shown empathy to your partner, they're far more likely to return the favor and now actively listen to you and be willing to hear what you have to say. So once you've said, you know what, I understand that I'm not doing the dishes and that it's, you're really frustrated by that. You know, then at that point, your partner's going to think, wow, he actually heard what I was saying. He understands that I'm frustrated. He understands that I'm not doing the dishes and it's bothering me. At that point, your partner is actually going to probably listen to you when you say, and you know, the reason I haven't been doing the dishes lately is I've been really stressed out from work. And when I come home from work, I've been extremely low energy and I've been depressed. And it's not that I don't want to be doing the dishes. I know that it bothers you. And I realize I've been burdening you unfairly, but I just really haven't felt up to it. When you then explain yourself like that, guess what? Your partner is going to be actually listening to you too, and they're not going to be, you know, castigating you anymore. They're probably going to realize, oh, you know what? I didn't appreciate your perspective. I wasn't in your head. I didn't know why you weren't doing the dishes. Thank you for explaining that to me. Right. right? It's all about bridging that divide. And if you go on the offensive without sort of building that empathy, you go nowhere. You don't build a bridge. The bridge goes nowhere. So you want to, again, be present with your partner. Do you want to understand where they're coming from? I always ask whenever I'm in an argument, I always ask, okay, for my own clarity, I, it, I hear this and I repeat, I parrot back what I hear. Is this correct? Nine times out of 10, it's not because what they're saying is not actually what they're meaning. And one of the key parts about parroting, when you're angry, when you're heated, you say things you don't mean. All the time. You, and <laughs> even when, when you say things like, you, you might mean to say you never clean the bathroom, but instead you never do anything around the house. Well, even saying you yeah. never do, you probably don't even really mean exactly. that. Because most people, you don't want to use those absolute statements, right? Absolute statements are pretty trapping. And we tend to we encourage people not to use them because it's probably not the case that your partner never does the dishes, right? But you say it in that kind of elevated mm -hmm. rhetoric because you're upset. Mm -hmm. But when you, your partner says, did you really mean to say that I never do the dishes? Mm -hmm. your, your partner's probably going to realize, well, I mean, no, obviously right. you do them sometimes, right? And that, so that, that's going to kind of bring that the rhetoric of the conversation back onto the plane of reality right. and not this heated rhetoric that tends to start out conversations, because right? Or at least tends to, start, tends to start out argumentative conversations. Only, only Seth deal in absolutes. And, exactly. and I, I'm so sorry. We, we, we were talking about star Wars before we started recording and now I'm stuck on it. I do apologize. Everybody. The problem there is I actually ended up getting a dinner with Darth bear when I was at TFF and he was one of the, uh, actual visual effects artists on Star Wars. And he has some very strong opinions on the new trilogy, by the way. So that dinner went for like three <laughs> hours. And I, I'm, I'm, kind of in a, I'm kind of in a Star Wars critical mindset at the moment. <laughs> so, but yeah. I mean, what, what's important is when you're dealing with somebody who is speaking in absolutes and they're incorrect by parodying, by getting them to, to have that pause that, that we speak of a lot, to rethink that spark of clarity is going to help bridge the gap between your version of things and their version of things. And that's when you're, it's my understanding that furries love pause anyway. So there's no inserting that pause into your conversations should really just be a, you know, pretty natural fit <laughs> for most furries. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs>
Whenever they're having problems, just add more paw. <laughs> I can think of at least 20 people that will immediately agree to that statement. Um, actually, no, I can think of more. Oh, no, this is awful. Um, we need Indeed. to stop before we hit critical mass. Um, but you know, really, all this stuff comes down to another thing we talk about on the show all the time, which is assuming good faith in your partners and realizing that when they're communicating with you, they, they're ultimately their goal is probably to resolve whatever the issue is, and keeping that in mind that the goal is to resolve the conflict, not to escalate it, right? Even if they're saying something in a pretty heated way, the reason they're bringing it up to you ultimately is because they're trying to fix something, right? And it's really important to maintain that perspective that your goal in having this argument or having this discussion about a conflict or something that's you know, not going according to what your partner's needs and wants might be is that you need to assume good faith and that ultimately what they want to do is get back to a place of harmony and agreement with you, right? Because they want the relationship to go well. And assuming both of you have that in mind, it's, it kind of reframes the entire discussion, right? So assuming good faith in your in your mates and realizing that they're probably trying to resolve conflict, even if what they're saying is coming out in a heated and aggressive way, is super, super important. You know, And you need also need to trust them when they communicate their needs and wants and to trust that they're communicating those accurately. One thing that tends to derail these conversations every, and it's like the most easiest way to do it. And we talk about this a lot in our shame series. If you want to go back and hear more about this topic, I also recommend that, uh, that series of our episodes, but it's this t idea of invalidating your partner. And you never want to get in a position where you're invalidating your partner's feelings, needs, and wants when they're communicating with you. Even if those needs and wants and emotions that they're feeling are coming out in a heated way, that's not nonviolent it's important to realize that those needs and wants and feelings are still legitimate, even if they're, you know, they're not being expressed very elegantly to you. So that comes down to not telling your partners what they do or do not need, or telling them simply to, to get over their feelings, or that's not important, or, you know, any of those types of things. Because, you know, for, for example, maybe you don't feel like the dishes are a very big deal, right? Like that's not a huge, that's not something that you really worry about, right? But maybe it is a big deal to your partner. Maybe they are, their standard for cleanliness is different than yours. And you have to be willing to accept that some people just have a need for cleanliness that might be higher than your need for cleanliness. And even though you don't agree with that need, it's still what their lived experience is. And if you want to be in a harmonious relationship with that person, you can't really ask them to change on a dime for you and suddenly not no longer to care about cleanliness or that particular issue if it's something that's near and dear to their heart, right? So, you know, even if you don't agree with your mate's perspective on a situation, it's still possible to tell them that you understand their position and to accept that they hold the position that they do. So even if I, maybe my partner says like, you know, we never go on dates anymore, right? And you are aware, you have a calendar, you have your Google calendar up and you're like, you know what? We went on a date on, on this date and that date. And here's the, the last five times we went out. And what are you saying? We, of course we go on dates and you know, that's, that's great and all, but again, you're just getting defensive. And essentially what you're doing there is you're invalidating your partner's feelings, right? Because no matter how many dates you've been on, for whatever reason, your partner feels like you haven't gone on enough dates. And you might feel like, you know what? I've already sacrificed all of my social time for you. And all of, I don't even see my friends anymore because all we ever do is go out on dates. And, you know, you, you probably have this whole speech you're about to launch into when you hear something like that. And it even hurt, might hurt your feelings. You know, I put all this effort into planning this date. And, I, you know, I researched, you know, open table reservations. And I, I got this reservation at this restaurant that, you know, I knew you would really like. And how dare you say that blah, blah, blah. So that, 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 that you know, here's the thing. When you communicate like that, 
you're just putting you're you're putting your partner on back on the defensive, and you're making them now have to justify their feelings, right? And so they're they're feeling invalidated. You're feeling invalidated. It's just a recipe for a really nasty conversation. But instead, again, that really powerful idea of repeating back to them. I un- and I've been adding that phrase. I understand. That's a really powerful and it's a really powerful phrase, right? I understand that you feel that we haven't been going on enough dates. It doesn't matter if that's true, right? But they feel it and you understand that they do. And communicating that, I'm hearing your message. I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm hearing what you're serving up to me right now. You don't feel like we're going out enough. Here's Once you say that, your partner isn't going to yell at you back, right? Like They're going to stop and pause probably. And suddenly the heat of the conversation is going to go way, way down because you just made them feel understood. And you can now follow up with, I really like to, you know, understand why you feel that way. Personally, I don't feel that way. I feel like we've been going on plenty of dates, but I'd like to hear more about why you don't feel that we that we have been. How and how could I maybe make our dates more special for you so that you feel like they're of value and that you don't feel this way anymore? At that point, you're now having a very constructive conversation where you're kind of getting down to the meat of whatever's bothering your partner. And maybe it's not that you're not going on dates, but maybe the real issue is that your phone is out on the table during the dates and they don't feel like they're getting quality time with you, right? And you never would have figured out what the actual issue was if you just got into a meta argument about whether you go on enough dates or not, right? That's actually not a constructive conversation because you're never going to convince your partner that, you, they, that yes, we have gone on enough dates, right? Because they just don't feel that way. And you need to figure out why. And you're not going to get to that why part of the question unless you engage your active listening skills and you express to your partner that you understand where they're coming from, whether or not you agree, right? Absolutely. You know, the, 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 uh, the whole going, we're just going to keep using this date idea. Again, it could be a difference of definition. Maybe your mate's idea of a date doesn't involve dinner and a movie. Maybe they want to do something more active. You wouldn't know that if, if you went into the meta argument of, well, According to my bullet journal, we went on dates on the following days. So right. uh, go fuck yourself. Right. I'm a scientist. I'm really a data-driven person. And this is actually really, really hard for me to do. I'm going to be really honest. This is something about, about communication that I fucked up for many years of my life. And it took me a lot of reading and really kind of d- a deep dive into nonviolent communication to figure out that I'd been doing it wrong all along. Because, you know, as a scientist, I'm very, I just want to present the evidence. And when you tell me something that I know is factually incorrect, my gut instinct is to correct the falsity immediately, right? I'm going to go dig up the receipts and the dates and, and prove to you that you're wrong, right? But here's the thing. Generally speaking, I'm not sure about you, Metrico, but do you find that proving your mate to be wrong is a very effective strategy in resolving a conflict? I don't. Tends not. I don't treat relationships as like a conquest. Um, I don't necessarily enjoy hearing the lamentations of my partners as I drink blood from their. (laughs) No. Right. Because you don't want, you're not looking, it's not total war, right? You're not actually trying to defeat your partner, right? Like that's actually, and people get lose track of that when they get into arguments. It becomes this adversarial Mm -hmm. thing where I'm trying to win and get my perspective out on Mm -hmm. top, right? But the thing is, if you're in a relationship with somebody, at the end of the day, both of your perspectives are important, and you need to keep that in mind. And you can't, you don't want to just defeat your partner and have them just swayed over to your side without actually engaging with why they have the perspective that they do, because you're really missing out on an opportunity to get to know your partner better and to understand where they're coming from when you do and you that. Know, we've been approaching this from the idea that 
you have the moral and logical high ground, but but here's the real tea. You may not. You may actually be wrong sometimes. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. Sometimes you might be doing something that hurts your partner that you didn't even realize you were doing. And you know, if you get really defensive, you're not actually going to engage with how you might actually be not living up to your partner's needs and wants in the way that you'd like to. Like, right? okay, so I live with some roommates and we have an issue with people cleaning. There are four people that live here. Two of us clean, two of us don't clean. And we had to have a conversation about cleaning the kitchen. One of my roommates was like, well, I don't cook, so I don't feel like I should clean the kitchen. What could have been a very productive conversation um, turned into one that was maybe not so productive because um, one of my other roommates got really angry at that. But like, that was a good opportunity for us to explain things like it's a common space or just because your girlfriend cooks in here doesn't mean that you don't benefit. And I might have gotten a little bit socialist on that. But um, like the only <laughs> ethical consumption in this house. <laughs> but the thing is, is that. Everybody wants to believe that their perspective is correct. Humans are programmed to believe that. It's the first rule of humanity, that that we want to believe that what we believe is true. And it's actually part, you know, this is going to be getting a little bit philosophical here, but I think it's actually worth talking about this. And it's something that I, you know, think about a lot. And it's kind of the um, the core this is actually why I'd like to eventually get my master's degree in couples and family mm-hmm. therapy, because I think thinking about human beings in terms of just being kind of a bundle of relationships is a really important way of thinking about, about the way that psychology works. Because ultimately, the way we, we relate to the world is by interactions with other things. We're not solipsists, right? We're not, we're not, we don't only exist in the world. There are other individuals with their own needs and wants and emotions and desires and experiences out there. And when we try to form relationships, we're engaging with these other beings, but we have this core deficiency, which is that we don't actually have direct access to any other people's needs, wants, emotions, and desires. We only have direct access, and we don't even necessarily have direct access to our own needs, wants, and desires, right? And in a few minutes, we're going to talk about how exactly you might figure those out if you're having someone who doesn't really understand your own needs and wants very well. Because that can take a lot of work if you're not someone who's used to thinking and being very open and honest, even mm-hmm. with yourself, that only makes it doubly difficult to be open and honest with your partner, right? But we have to keep in mind that we aren't the only thing that exists. Our partners are not non-player characters. They're not NPCs, right? They have just as much agency and autonomy, life experience and baggage as mm-hmm. we do. And we don't have direct access to that the way we, we have direct access to our own. And that's why it's really important that when we, when we engage with our partners that we really turn on these active mm-hmm. listening skills because active listening skills are the only tool we have to gain access to our partner's minds and the true state of their feelings and needs and desires. We have no other way, unless you have a mind reading, Ray, that I'd love to have access to myself, that would be really cool. We don't have the ability to read our partner's minds and to know what they're thinking, to know where they're coming from, unless we listen to them. And listening is something we're just not very good at because the thing that we care about mostly is our, I mean, it's for selfish individuals, right? Like that's, that's just kind of human nature is we have this tendency to be very selfish and to care about our own perspectives more. But when you're engaged in a romantic relationship with somebody, the perspective of your partner really ought to be important to you, right? And you also want to have a lot of respect for that. You want to respect their perspective as much as you respect your own, because by showing your partner that level of respect, you're encouraging them to mirror it back to you. And people tend to actively listen to you when you actively listen to them. That's ultimately what we mean by establishing an empathetic connection to your partner during a conversation. It's this idea of reciprocal 
active listening, going back and forth, because neither of you is invalidating the other's perspective, and neither of you is telling the other, no, you don't need that, no, you don't want that, no, that isn't true, because it is true for them, right? And even if it's not true for you, you have to be willing to engage with the fact that people will often share different perspectives on the same situation. There's an old saw about breakups, that when people break up, there's what he said happened, there's what she said happened, and there's what actually happened, right? And usually those are three different things. And we know this, right? But in, in, the, in the context of an argument, we have to keep that in mind. There's always going to be my perspective, your perspective, and the objective truth, right? And the, the fact, we have to keep in mind that none of us, no human being, has direct access to the objective truth. We all filter things through our own perception, our own schema, our own previous experiences, and that all shapes our, our mindset and, and the way we approach the world. And none of us have direct access to that objective truth. So don't act like your truth is the truth. It is merely a truth. And we have to engage with your partner's truth as well. And by doing so, you're actually far more likely to get closer to the objective truth. The more perspectives you have on a particular issue and the more ways you look at and approach something, the greater your perception is. You kind of can expand your awareness of the situation and ultimately become a far more fulfilled individual in doing so. And even better, your relationship is going to improve because you're now sharing your partner's perception with them. So I want to go back to something you were talking about a little bit earlier. And it's the idea of how we interface with people in our lives. The way that I've always kind of explained it is that think of the world and everybody in it as cartoon characters. They can be very simply drawn. And there are really two kind of boundaries that each person has. There's the line on the outside and the line on the inside. And with us as people, we have these two separate boundaries. There's a boundary that we have for everybody that is not us, and there's the boundary that we establish for ourselves. And outside forces can't get on the inside. Really, though, the ability to listen, the ability to speak, it is the only way that we have to interface with one another as people. Everything else is surface level, and there's no way for us to express our needs and our wants without speaking and without listening. You, you can't lick somebody and be like, oh, you wanted me to clean the bathroom, didn't you? You can't kiss somebody and know that they wanted you to take them out to pot-pot for a date. It, it seems kind of silly when you put it this way, but the main failure of relationships that I've encountered from doing this show and also in my personal life is the inability to listen and the inability to speak when it comes to wants and needs. Now, with some people, that comes from an area of not wanting to listen, of pure selfish desires. What's more troubling is when it comes from a place of not knowing what you want or what you need. And that can take a lot more time for you to develop. When you don't know what you want, what you need in life and relationship out of yourself, relationships tend to fail because you can't interface. You don't know what to speak. 
you don't know what to listen to. It's impossible to know how to meet the needs and wants of a partner when you don't know how to meet your own because you don't know what they are. If you want to listen to other people, you need to be able to listen to yourself. And that's actually the next thing we wanted to really talk about is being engaging active listening skills to yourself. And this is something that people don't even think about often, but it's the idea of being able to empathize with yourself. I want you to kind of do a mental exercise. Step out of your yourself and imagine that you are standing across the room from yourself and that you are your own best friend. And you're now basically giving yourself, you know, having a conversation with yourself, okay? And you really want to be able to do the same skills that we just uh, went over with how to talk to some your, your partner. Now you're doing that with yourself. So when you have a thought, maybe it's a negative thought about your partner, maybe it's a negative thought about yourself, maybe it's just you know an emotion that you're not quite sure where it's coming from. Ask yourself, like, do I really mean that? You know, what what is this thought? What is this emotion that I'm having? Repeat it back to yourself, right? I am feeling X because of Y, right? And then check with yourself. Do I really mean that? Is that really why I'm feeling that way? And kind of question yourself, you know, instead of, you know, most people have a tendency when they have a really strong feeling, especially if it's a negative feeling, they have a tendency to want to run away from that feeling. They want to escape from it. Like, for example, if, you know, you're feeling sad or you're, you know, you're maybe you're, you're actually, you know, feeling grief because you've lost someone recently the tendency is to kind of mask that feeling, to, you know, get on your phone, talk to a bunch of other friends. Maybe you're playing a video game, you're reading a book, you're doing whatever you can to actually run away from yourself, right? But instead, if you step out of your body and actually have that conversation with yourself, you're going to be present there. And you're actually going to listen to your, what your body and what your feelings are telling you. So instead of running away from your feelings, chase them, chase them down, chase them to their source, figure out where they're coming from. Because anytime you're having a feeling, this is another uh, Marshall Rosenbergism, um, but he talks about how anger is essentially a tragically expressed need or want, and most negative feelings are. They are those are tragically expressed needs and wants. And what you need to do when you're feeling a certain feeling is figure out what need or want that feeling is ultimately revealing in you, and that's ultimately probably what you want to be communicating to your partner. Oftentimes, communicating the emotion to your partner. Again, I'm just gonna shame myself here a little. Um, this is something that I struggled with for a long time because when I wanted my partners to empathize with me, I would focus on expressing how I was feeling to them. And they would, I'd, make them, I'd make them try to understand how sad I was or how angry I was or how upset something made me. But generally speaking, uh, that ends up making your partners feel guilty rather than actually encouraging them to engage with your needs and wants, which is probably what you're really trying to address, right? You'd like your needs and wants to be met better by your partners. Well, you don't actually need them to fully understand every little minutia of how you're feeling because they can't directly change how you're feeling, right? They can't go in your head and just flip that emotion off for you, even though that's kind of probably what you'd like them to do. It's not how things actually work. The way they're going to ultimately change how you're feeling about a situation is by meeting your needs and wants better. And so what you need to focus on expressing in, in, in a more dispassionate way is the underlying need or want that the emotion is revealing. So let's say um, you, you're in a polyamorous relationship and your partner is out on a date with someone else. And while they're out on that date, you're, you end up feeling really jealous. And, you know, you, that could be for a variety of reasons, right? Jealousy can crop up for a whole host of reasons. Maybe you're afraid that, you know, their partner is better than you. Maybe you're afraid that the 
you know, that secretly they like them better, any of those things, right? But excessive telling your partner, I'm, I felt really jealous when you were gone, doesn't actually communicate your needs and wants in the situation very well, because it's such an, a, a kind of ambiguous catch-all term. The thing that you actually want to express to your partner is kind of chase down while you know, take advantage of that alone time you have while your partner is out and figure out why am I feeling jealous? You know, ask yourself, you know, wh what is the source of this feeling? Is it because I'm afraid they're not going to come back? Is it because I'm concerned that they're better than me? Is it because I'm concerned that, you know, they're going on a much more expensive date with their other partner than they're going on than they've gone on with me recently? And at that point, you can actually address the real thing that's bothering you with your partner. Rather than when they come home to saying, you made me feel jealous, which is not going to be a constructive conversation. I guarantee that's going to become a defensive argument. Uh, instead, you can say, hey, while you're out with your other partner, I ended up feeling some jealousy. And I realized that the reason I was feeling jealous is because I am a little bit miffed that, you know, you spent $50 taking your partner to dinner. But when we went on our last date, you bought me a Big Mac. And I'm feeling a little bit uh, deprioritized in your life because of that. And, you know, guess what? That's going to be something that's far easier for your partner to engage with. You might get a, a reaction of, oh, I'm really sorry. I didn't even realize that that, that factored into, you know, I didn't realize that how much I spent on dinner would make you feel that way. But it totally makes sense to me that you would feel that way. And you, you know what? We should, let's go out, let's go plan a dinner at the steakhouse. And I'll, I'll make, I, I want to correct that. I want to make you feel special. You know, I, that might be the reaction you get when you actually express the true thing that's bothering you. But when you just focus on the negativity and the, and the fact that you're feeling really bad, you aren't really giving your partner much to work with and you're not giving them any tools to make you feel better because you're not expressing the, the underlying need or want that's not being addressed by your partner. And so that's why before you, before you communicate with your partner, and, in, and expect them to engage their active listening skills, it's really important that you actually figure out how to express your needs and wants to them because otherwise you're just making their life all the much more difficult, right? It, it, if you're really lucky and you have a partner who's extremely good at nonviolent communication, they're still going to engage their active listening skills and they'll try to work with you on unpacking what that underlying need and what might be. You'll hear, you know, oh, I understand that you're feeling jealous. Can you please explain to me why that is, right? Your partner will have, if they're, if they're any good at what I'm just talking about, that's the re idealized reaction you'd get from your partner. But guess what? If your partner is less good at nonviolent communication, you can literally have that conversation with yourself before your partner walks in the door. You can ask yourself, why am I feeling jealous? You know, that's really the question that you need. That's the million dollar question, right? And so there's lots of different ways that you can access that. And I'm going to go through a few of them. Uh, one of them is just, you know, mindfulness. It's that idea of inserting pause, right? It's, you know, taking time before you express what you're feeling to your partner to think about why. Why am I feeling this way? What is the true reason? And it's important to be honest with yourself. Generally speaking, when we're in relationships, we become kind of childlike. And a lot of times the feelings that we have, if we actually truly analyze our needs and wants, they might boil down to things that sound really childish to us. And that makes us want to not really be honest with ourselves about what we're feeling. And this is a real barrier to communication in relationships. But you have to embrace that fact that you're going to be kind of childlike in your romantic relationships. Because, you know, even if you're a really great at communication and you're, you know, you, you work as a diplomat at the United Nations and you're excellent at nonviolent communication, sometimes when you're, you know, back home with your wife or your, your, your husband or whoever, you're, you know, you're going through a, a much more childlike experience where you're, maybe those skills aren't as easy for you to apply because the emotions of the situation are so much more. It's easy to be dispassionate when the needs and wants you're discussing are the needs and wants of other people. But when we're discussing our own needs and wants, it's a very deeply personal thing. And a lot of those needs and wants are kind of hard-coded into us 
when we're children. And that's why we kind of enter a childlike state when we have these really powerful emotions. So you might end up, you know, you might think, oh, wow, the fact that I'm bothered by my partner spending more money on their other partner, that's really petty. I shouldn't care. I shouldn't care about that. Like, why am I being so petty about this? But the thing is, when you say that, you're shitting yourself, right? And I always say, don't shit yourself. Um, because what you should think and what you should need, and what you should want aren't actually relevant to resolving the issue, right? You're just, if you just shame yourself, you're not fixing anything. You're actually just encouraging yourself to kind of shut up and not address the issue with your partner at that point. Instead, it's important to realize, you know what, it's kind of childlike and this is a little silly. And you can even say that out loud to your partner. It's actually a really powerful tool to admit to your partner when, when you're being irrational. Admit to your partner when you're being a bit childlike and say, you know what, I realize that this is extremely silly and I realize it's petty and it's I shouldn't probably be concerned about, you know, how much money you're spending on your part of the partner versus me. But for whatever reason, it really bothered me that you spent more on dinner with him than you spent on me. And I know that's silly, but I just wanted to tell you that it bothered me. And I want to talk to you about that so we can figure out how I can feel better about the situation. Admitting to your partner that what you're feeling is kind of dumb and kind of silly is actually a really great way to diffuse an argument and to make your partner engage with you and actively listen to you. Because, you know, your partners, if, if they think that you're actually arriving at that from a, a, a logical well-reasoned, like, you know, this is something I've really intellectually thought about. It's You're going to get a completely different reaction from you admitting, hey, I'm being irrational and silly, but I'm having this dumb feeling. I'd like your help with it, right? That's a much, actually a much more humble and a much more effective way to approach your partner about a feeling that you might not be very proud and of. And it's important to, to, again, understand that even though something might seem petty and childish and silly and stupid and dumb, it doesn't make the feeling any less valid. Exactly. You you don't ever want to invalidate the feeling you can your own or your partners, right? Exactly. It's it's when you start invalidating feelings, whether they're yours, your partners, you know, the get over it starts coming out. It doesn't resolve anything. It doesn't heal anything. It doesn't grow anything. It's not useful. It's not hurtful. So don't confuse when your partner says, Hey, this might seem childish to you. That doesn't mean you just tune out. That means that you're like, okay, so this is kind of like, uh, it sounds dumb, but it's important enough to bring it up. So this is something that you should take seriously in order to find a way to resolve. If it's something that you're coming at with yourself, having that level of honesty and vulnerability within yourself, because we like to think of ourselves as like bastions of, you know, we're, we're, we're suits of armor and we're in, impregnable. Like it's, it's, you can't, you can't break me, but that's not really the truth because we can be brought down by something as small as, well, my boyfriend bought me a Big Mac, but he bought him his other boyfriend fish filet of fish and I like fish more than I like burgers. We can be brought down by something as minimal as that. I wanted my biggie size. (laughs) And it sounds again, silly and childish and petty and dumb, but it is still a valid feeling. So don't invalidate the feeling, invalidate the childish response that you have to it. Don't lash out. Resolve. So again, just be honest with yourself. Really, mindfulness is going to help you so much with that. Taking that moment to think, okay, this is stupid. This is dumb. How are we going to fix this? 
Um, something that I personally recommend, like mindfulness is good, but I pair mindfulness with meditation because it is that stillness that you want. It's, it's meditation. Some people will say you need a mantra. You need some kind of, you know, Hare Krishna thing to repeat. You, you don't need that. You just need to be you with yourself. And by taking the moment to separate yourself from distractions, you can sort of drift inside of your own consciousness. And it takes time. But you can allow thoughts and feelings and emotions and perspectives to sort of just causally drift. And you can think about them. Hey, I remember that yesterday I was feeling really kind of shitty towards my my boyfriend because... It's, I cleaned the bathroom and then he took a shower and got water everywhere. How do I feel about that now? Should I talk to him about it? Is this actually a problem or is it just me blowing things out of proportion? And meditation will help you resolve a lot of problems that you think exist among you and the people in your life, but really they're problems that you just have with yourself. Now, I realize meditation can sound like kind of like a frou-frou, hippy-dippy thing. And, you know, you kind of like, you know, not, not everyone really feels like that's something that they can do or that, you know, meditation's not for me or that's, you know, that's not the way that I do things, you know. And a lot of people just have a lot of resistance to that. But there are lots of different ways to meditate that might not seem like traditional meditation to you. One of my favorite is I like to go on nature walks. That's actually the way that I do this, is I like to be alone with myself in nature. And I have a lot of my best insights into my own needs and wants when I'm out just walking around in nature, you know, taking a walk in the Seattle Arboretum or, you know, taking a hike or something like that. And that's when I do my best thinking about myself and my own needs and wants. It's kind of just an opportunity to kind of turn inwards while also kind of experiencing the world around me. It puts me in a really kind of reflective state of mind when I do that. And that's true of a lot of people. So if you're not somebody who finds meditation, you know, alone in your room to be effective, try taking a walk and see if that, you know, is effective for you. Another thing, I mean, yeah, go ahead, Metrico. I mean, I'll be honest here. I live in New York City. We don't got a lot of green space. And even walking outside, you're inundated with the noise of traffic, of people. What I sometimes do, even though there's all of that, it can sometimes be enough. You don't need to be in nature. You don't need to be one with the trees and the grass. Something that that breaks the routine, the, the standard monotony of the day-to-day. I mean, if you think about a standard individual, we'll make somebody kind of boring. You wake up, you go to work, you come home, you faff around for like a few hours and then you go to bed and you rinse and repeat and you're working for the weekend. But something that breaks the monotony, let's say, okay, well, just getting out of the house and walking around the block a few times is going to help me clear my head and give me time to think. So communing with nature for me translates to breaking the routine And even though that break of routine becomes part of the routine, it's a break in the general monotony. So if you don't have access to green spaces, if you don't have the ability to get to the green spaces, work with what you have. It's meditation is what you make of it. And 
again, you don't need to paint with all the colors of the wind if you live in the concrete jungle. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I would like to see, you know, to paint, be able to paint with the colors of the wind, though. Uh, some people, depending on your, <laughs> uh, you know, area where you live, uh, the legality of this is, is questionable. But if you're in an area where it's, you know, possible to uh, engage in like psychedelic spirit quests, this is actually another really powerful thing that, you know, in Western society, we've kind of lost access to. But a lot of societies through the course of human history have actually used substances uh, and psychedelic substances in particular to kind of turn inwards into the self and kind of really go on a spiritual journey to kind of figure out where, you know, what your needs and wants are and who you really are. And uh, that's, again, not something that everyone has access to or even feels comfortable doing. And if you are going to do that, it's really important to do that in a guided way, ideally with someone who has shamanic training or something like that. But there are opportunities uh, you know, around the world to engage in these types of programs. And if you're the type of person who thinks that might be a helpful avenue, um, it's that's something that people have been doing for thousands of years. Egyptian culture has a very strong hit shamanic uh, history. Um, Native American cultures have a very strong shamanic tradition. And so if you're a member of any of those communities, you probably actually have a lot more uh, familiarity with this. But uh, those types of shamanic um, psychedelic uh, kind of trips <laughs> as they uh end up being can be really powerful for figuring yourself out. I'm actually somebody who has done this myself. I've gone, I've uh, done this twice actually. And, uh, for me, I learned more about myself from, uh, trying some psychedelic su substances in a, in a controlled environment, by the way, where I was safe and I was surrounded by people who weren't using drugs. And I knew that I wasn't, you know, at any risk of you know, endangering myself or others. And that's all, that's all very important to set up in advance, by the way, if you're going to do this kind of thing, you want to do it with someone else who's very experienced and who can guide you through the process. But it can be a really powerful thing to do if you have access to it. Uh, and, you know, there are lots of good resources uh, out there for people who, you know, for, you know, shamanic uh, kind of retreats, actually, that you can go on if that's something that appeals to you. And for some people, um, you might be surprised to hear me saying this, but prayer is actually a really powerful thing as well. And not all of us are, are religious or spiritual, but for those of us who are, um, oftentimes actually praying about your needs and wants can be really effective because, you know, again, prayer is ultimately a conversation between you and whatever higher power you believe in. And kind of having that conversation with that higher power can oftentimes reveal a lot about your your true needs and wants as well when you're being uh, truly honest uh, with yourself and honest with, you know, in, in what you're praying about. So that can also be really powerful. And again, we are going to continue the this might sound weird coming from me trend, but if you want to kind of engage in prayer that that allows for the exploration of your wants and needs um, and and you're not part of like a tradition that uses an intermediary like a priest or anything of that nature, um, having an empty chair in the room, actually kind of helps if you just direct your speaking to the chair. Uh, I know the stereotype is you need to get on your knees and kneel by the bed and fold your hands, but sit down, have an empty chair, look at an empty space and speak to it as if your higher power is present there. And it helps. It's a lot of traditions will use inanimate objects or will use idols or, or some form of imagery in order to help kind of bring the, the almighty, you know, construct that is beyond our understanding into a means that is far more understandable. 
So if you use the means that you have accessible in your life, it helps to have these kinds of conversations in prayer. It's prayer for a lot of people tends to be things like, you know, thank you for the day. Also, it'd be nice if I could have money. It's, it's a lot of prayer tends to be on surface level needs, but if you're going to engage in prayer, make sure that you're vulnerable. And this is a great way to aid vulnerability. Um, it's, it's what I would recommend. Um, and it's a trick that I learned back when I was in the church. So what, you know, no, no. You know, also you're mentioning church, talking to a, a priest or a, you know, something like that mm-hmm. is also, can also be effective if you're someone who does have that kind of faith tradition. But if you aren't, there are kind of secular priests out there who can still help you with this process. They're called relationship coaches or counselors, right? You can speak to a social worker or a counselor or a relationship coach or any of those types of people, a life coach. This might, be, again, be a little self-serving because I actually am, am branching out into doing relationship coaching and life coaching myself right now. Mm-hmm. But I, from mm-hmm. that perspective, you know, it's essentially what that is. It's kind of the shamanic tradition minus the drugs or the priest minus the religion, right? That's essentially what, what it is. And that can actually be really helpful too, is just having kind of a, a, a neutral third party who has no investment in the situation other than helping you figure yourself out, right? They're literally just someone who's trained at active listening to pull out those needs and wants, right? That's literally what the coach's job is, is to actively listen to you and pull out from you what your true needs and wants are to help you interpret your feelings. So that's something that a counselor or a, a relationship coach is exceedingly good at. And if you actually would like me to do that for you, I, I do charge a very reasonable hourly rate for that service. So you can get in touch with Vero if that's something you'd like to pursue with me personally. But or, or anyone, I mean, any relationship coach would be able to do this for you who's, I mean, who's accredited and all that jazz, uh, ideally, or at least has enough of a track record to know that they're not, you know, just some guy who is moonlighting as a psychic down the road and feels like he's good at this, right? You want to make sure, do, do a little due diligence to make sure you're talking to somebody who actually is trained in active listening, but um, that can be really useful too. So there are, there actually are trained professionals out there who's sole job is basically to help you interpret your needs and wants. And those people can be really useful. A lot of people don't feel comfortable talking to a psychotherapist or a, or a, or a shrink because they don't, well, I'm not mentally ill. I don't have a problem per se. I just want to talk. I just need somebody to talk to. And that's kind of where, uh, where coaching comes in. It's kind of the, uh, the idea of counseling minus the pathologization of what, what's going on with you. Because a, a relationship coach, is not their job is not to treat any illness or malady that you might be experiencing. They don't actually, they're not providing mental health services. They're just providing um, an opportunity for you to kind of figure yourself out in a more comfortable, relaxed setting. Can I just say that I really dislike the idea that having a problem is something that should be so stigmatized that you can't seek help for? We have problems every day. Some of them you need help. Well, part of it comes down to the way our insurance system works in this country, unfortunately, because for a, for a psychologist to see you and, and to bill your insurance, they have to diagnose you with something, right? And that's kind of absurd because most people don't need a diagnosis; they just need some help, right? But at, at least for, for people who have you know low grade, maybe mental health issues like mild personality disorders or just you know mild insecurities, you know things like that. It's very different from somebody who's suffering clinical depression or you know generalized anxiety, things that are actually medically treatable. That's kind of a different class of mental health issues. So if you're somebody who's more struggling with interpreting your own needs and wants and getting to know yourself, 
you know, coaching can be a lower grade of service that is actually mm -hmm. more appropriate for you in that context. See, and I'll agree to that, but but I guess like what I'm trying to say is that there is a stigma that the second that you have to seek outside help, whether it's from a psychotherapist, whether it's from a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a relationship coach, a life coach, whatever it might be, the second that you have to do that means that you are a failure because you can't figure it out yourself. Here's the secret, and I'm not talking about the shitty little book. Here's the actual secret. Really, none of us have figured it out on our own. I haven't. And I mean, we're still figuring it out. Like, Patrick and I basically life coach each other all the time. That's part of the joy of us co-hosting this podcast together. So we're able mm -hmm. to be there for each other. And we, we both trust each other to have these active listening skills. Mm -hmm. So that can be, you know, even having a friend to do that for you can be really powerful. I mean, when I was growing up, especially like after I got disowned, it's the person that sort of got a lot of my emotional wants and needs out of me because I was a bundle of rage um, was a guy who worked at a sex shop um, because he listened. And that was actually kind of a very important relationship for me to have had um, at that point, at that juncture in my life. So your help may not come from, you know, a psychologist, a psychotherapist, they may not come from a relationship coach, a life coach. It may not come from Eddie who worked at the attached sex shop to the club that I worked at. Everybody gets help from somebody else. We are, no man is an island unto himself as the saying goes. And if we try to pretend that we can resolve our issues, our problems, our uncertainties, and our doubts without relying on other people within our life or seeking out specialized help, we're going to fail. You can't bury your head in the sand. You can't pretend that you have all the answers. Nobody does. That's what makes humanity this weird yet still beautiful tapestry. We have to rely on each other. And when you build these relationships, whether they're professional, if it's again with like a, an accredited psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever it might be, or whether it's, you know, a personal relationship, like the one that Vero and I have fact is, is that once you've developed that you're able to blossom and grow and what your needs and wants now are may not reflect the future. Your needs and wants change all the time. So just because you've had two or three sessions, just because you've had two or three conversations does not mean that that is going to stand the test of time. So you're not a failure for needing help. We all need help. It's the real truth. And yes, for some people, they don't feel comfortable talking about this type of stuff with people they actually know in real life because they're concerned that because of that, maybe that childishness of their, what the underlying need or want might be, they're going to face judgment from that person. And that's actually another really good case to be made for talking to a professional, whether it be a life coach, a relationship coach, a social worker, a psychotherapist, you know, whatever your, per your preferred flavor of professional might be, a uh, priest, whatever, because those people are also, as professionals, are trained to not be judgmental 
in assessing those things. And when they hear those childish needs and wants, they're not going to be shaming you for those. They're just going to be helping you interpret them and helping you channel that into productive uh, conversations with people in your life who are important to you. So that's really important to keep in mind. Is the, one of the great, beautiful things about hiring a professional to sit down and have this conversation with you is they're not going to be judging you and there's no consequence to the conversation, right? Like if you piss them off, if you end up having a bad interaction, if you say something dumb, this isn't somebody from your life. This is just a person you hire and you can fire them, right? So if you end up having yep. a bad time, you fire them and get somebody else or whatever. And it's kind of a transactional sort of thing. And that's why, you know, people who shy away from that can really sometimes benefit from it because maybe they are someone who's really sensitive to shame and really sensitive to judgment and doesn't want to face that from somebody in their actual life. Again, bringing in a professional can be really helpful in that situation. 100%. It's professionals do a great service and just because you need to see one or just because you choose to see one, of it doesn't mean that you're a broken individual. It just means it's the opposite. It means that you're trying to get control of your life. I find that the most broken people are the ones that bury their head in the sand and just let life happen to them. You're taking a stand. You're trying to figure out who you are and what your place in the world is. That is not a broken person. That is a strong, resilient person. So don't talk shit about yourself. Uh, it's, it's, if you want to be vulnerable, you got to understand sometimes shit is going to suck. But ultimately, you're a stronger person for it. So knowing your wants, knowing your needs, one of the ways, once you have a good foundation, and this could be through seeking advice from friends, meditation, whatever it might be, one of the best ways to sort of not run from it, you know, when you just kind of get bored, when you get uncomfortable, when things aren't going your way, and you just kind of want to distract yourself from it, here's a hot tip. Don't distract yourself from it. Allow yourself to be bored. Allow yourself to be uncomfortable. And try to figure out why you're experiencing those feelings. Why are you bored? Why do you have malaise? Why are you filled with a sense of ennui? Why do you feel uncomfortable around these things? What is it that makes you feel these emotions? Don't run from them. Don't distract yourself from them. You don't have to embrace them either. You just have to identify where they're coming from. Find the root to these emotions. If you're uncomfortable around people that are stereotypically flaming gay, why is that? You might think it's because, oh, well, I just don't like it. They're loud. And you just dismiss it. But it could come from a place of shame. And unless you allow yourself to be bored and uncomfortable and stuck in that kind of a situation where you're forced to think about what the root causes, you're never going to get to that conclusion because you're distracting yourself with a lie. Boredom is treated as if it is a really just negative thing. For me, it's the sign that something is wrong. And it could be you're wanting to be engaged in an activity and you're trying to convince yourself that you're going to super duper enjoy this activity, but you don't. And so rather than, you know, trying to figure out why you don't like that activity, you just find something else to fill the void. You're going to continue running into boredom. 
I, I, I play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons is not for everybody. And some people get kind of bored when they play Dungeons and Dragons because it's not for them. Some people will just quit and, hey, more power to you. Some people will stick on, but they'll start to be disruptive. They'll start to act out. They'll start to not pay attention. And they actually end up being a force of disruption to everybody that's involved. And it's because they refuse to admit that it's not for them. They distract themselves. They add in external elements and it ruins the fun for everybody. Allow yourself to be bored. Identify why you're feeling bored and take steps to resolve the boredom. The same is true with discomfort. If you don't analyze it on a deeper level, you will always be bored and you will always be uncomfortable. And at least in those areas. And I find that when you don't address things like boredom, ennui, un- discomfort, those areas grow and they become more and more all-encompassing. And so whereas you just were bored on a Friday night, you're now bored on a Friday night and a Saturday night and soon a Sunday night. And it just continues to grow and grow. And you begin to feel more and more uncomfortable, not just with those particular situations, but with the idea of you as an individual. So take those moments. If you're having problems or difficulties in interpreting them, Get yourself a good friend that you trust that can walk you through some of those things. Again, maybe you need to seek the help of a professional, and that's completely fine too. But don't sit on them. Don't allow them to fester. Treat them as a warning sign, you know, a warning light in your car, as we always say. And I do like that phrase. The moment that that pops up, it may be nothing. It could just be you're you're just not into it. There could be a deeper sort of thing going on. And if you ignore it, bad things have a tendency to happen. So all of this, you know, knowing what you want, knowing what you need, these are things that you must have in order to develop a sense of empathy towards yourself. And for some reason, when, when a lot of people talk about empathy, they forget that that's kind of the first step. You have to have empathy towards your own wants and your own needs. We're often our own harshest critics, and that's, <laughs> that's really damaging to relationships. And, yeah, it's, it's, we're not the Terminator. We're not, we, we don't have you know one objective, and that's going to be it. You've got to accept your own humanity mm-hmm. and realize you're a bundle of stupid emotions and lizard brain impulses. Mm-hmm. And as much as we like to pretend that we're all perfectly 100% rational human beings all the oh, time, God. we just aren't. We just are not that. We are emotional beings, and we have to take that into account. And I mean, even you know, people that struggle with emotions, we're still emotional beings. We may not understand them half the time, but goddamn, do we feel them. The point is, is that we have to be generous towards ourselves, and we have to extend empathy towards ourselves. And once we're able to do that, We need to be generous towards those in our lives and extend the same to them. And once we do that, you'll find that relationship conflicts tend to happen less and less. And when they do, they're not big blowouts because you're doing active listening is routine maintenance. It's think of it like we're going to talk about cleaning your house again. 
it's doing spot cleans here and there. Oh no, coffee got on the countertop. Let me wipe that off really quick. You don't have to deep clean as much because as it turns out, you're doing just fine by maintaining. It's when you sort of just let things go. You ignore the mess. You ignore the filth. You ignore the stench. That when one day everything sort of hits a breaking point and it's this massive effort to get things back to a livable state. Relationships are like that. Communication is active maintenance in your relationship. And you can use all the I statements in the world, but if there's no empathetic active listening, they're just going out the window. And again, you need to employ these skills as well. It's not one-sided. Relationships aren't just, I'm the big dom and I'm going to talk and you're going to listen. We're no longer in a leave it to beaver society where the man speaks, the wife listens, and the kids get into wacky zany adventures. (laughs) Everybody has an equitable share in the success of a relationship. And it is important that you remember that. It is important that you act with empathy towards yourself and you extend that same empathy towards the others in your life. Remember that your partners are human and they're not perfect and that they never will be. And you can work towards perfection, you know, and that's a laudable goal, but neither you nor your partner are going to get there. And you're always going to have feelings that you can't explain. And that's, you know, and that's something you have to grapple with. And being able to explain those feelings and then express that to your partner will always make your relationship better, guaranteed. And that's kind of the whole point of this topic that we went through today. (laughs) So if you take nothing else away from today's episode, just recognize your own humanity and recognize the humanity in your partner. You aren't robots. You aren't perfect. And when you accept you're, you're flawed and you have dumb emotions, that just tends to make everything go a lot better. I think that's a good way to wrap it up. It's um, we're going to move on to our listener question. It's we actually um, our listener question for this week is asking some questions about anal. And they wrote in with the following. Hey, guys, I love your podcast. And I was wondering if I could get some advice on something. I have just entered a friends with benefits kind of relationship with a gay male friend of mine. And the other night we had our first time being intimate with me topping. We both had a good safe time, but during sex, I found some evidence that he did not douche beforehand. I didn't mention it after, and I don't think he noticed it. I'm not upset or mad at all, but it was a bit of a turnoff seeing that. How can I bring it up that I would prefer for him to douche before we have sex without embarrassing him? And, you know, I think this is something that I definitely have experienced myself. Um, First thing gets down to that whole, you know, we're human beings part. And it's like, well, you have to accept the reality of the fact that you are, in fact, fucking a butt and that butts make poo. And that occasionally there's going to be some residue there, whether you clean out or not. And maybe your partner did clean out and maybe you're just, you know, imagining that they did. And so it could be an awkward conversation to have, if you're, you know, like if you accuse them of not cleaning out first. Right. So I would step away from that kind of accusational uh, approach to the situation. And instead, just the next time you're about to play, just quickly say something like, oh, hey, would you mind cleaning out first? You know, and that can be 
you know, very, this, this isn't very anodyne, just like, hey, would you mind kind of thing. It's, it's not going to put them too much on the spot. And if there's someone who has never done that before and they get, you know, really sheepish, maybe that's when you, you know, whip out the douche that you happen to have bought and that you, you know, brought with you just in case they don't have one. And, you know, you can kind of walk them through that if they you know, haven't done it before. And it can be a kind of, you know, fun sort of learning experience in that situation. But again, it's not about shaming them or saying, oh, you were, you were messy the last time we played. There's really no reason to get into that. That's not going to be a productive conversation. It's going to probably make them feel bad like you were kind of getting at. So I would just focus on the next time and, and make the next time better rather than focusing on maybe what didn't go so well the first time. And that's probably going to be a better approach. Um, but you know, generally speaking, you, at the end of the day, you do just have to accept that occasion that's going to be a thing. And it's kind of the cost of admission to having anal sex is that, you know, you are fucking a cavity that its main purpose is excretion and not, you know, sex. So you just need to keep that in mind and, and be, you know, at least at peace with the reality of the situation. Yeah. I mean, shit happens with anal. Uh, exactly. There's, there's yes. no real way around it. Something, and that's why you know when I have sex, I tend to use an activity towel. I call it, I kind of jokingly call it an activity towel. I always put a towel down underneath when <laughs> when we're having sex because you know you never know when Santorum's just going to sneak up on you, yeah. right? Oh no, like you're walking, <laughs> you're you're walking in DC, minding your own business, and then you turn around, Rick Santorum. Rick Santorum? <laughs> um, it's scary when it happens. Oh. I know. I don't like. I don't like seeing Santorum. I'm not expecting it. What I would also recommend, and this is something that depending on your relationship with your friend, which I would imagine if you two are fucking, you've got at least a decent relationship. Sometimes I raise points of information just to kind of figure things out or to lead a conversation in a certain way. So in this circumstance, I would probably ask something like, oh, hey, you know, separate from this from this encounter give enough time it's it's i would probably wait a few days and then just ask hey so out of curiosity you know it's it's i'm interested in anal what is your what do you do to prepare for anal and there's actually a much less if you if you're really concerned about your partner maybe not having a lot of experience with anal sex and maybe you're pretty well convinced that they've never douched before or don't know anything about it uh, a really disarming way to have this conversation is actually to make it sound like it's your issue and not their issue so here's the way I would actually approach it in that situation. You'd say something like, hey, you know, I just bought a dildo and, uh, you know, I know we just had anal sex the other day. Do you have any tips on how to clean out first before anal sex? Because I'm trying to figure out, I, you know, I'm a top and I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, trying to explore my prostate a little bit. But like, I'm trying to figure out how to do that better. And, you know, have, do, what, 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 you know, at that point, you can say, how do you clean out before doing anal stuff? And they say, well, actually, I'm not that that's kind of giving them an opportunity to say, well, actually, I don't know what I'm doing either. And then you can kind of, you know, figure it out together, right? And it becomes a joint exploration, rather than putting the focus on like, oh, my partner has a deficiency I need to correct, right? Instead, make it sound like it's your own deficiency. And you're actually getting your partner's help with it. And that's a really disarming way of figuring it out together without making it sound like your partner's inexperienced or is somehow inferior to you in some way, right? The question that I have actually used in the past in this situation is, hey, I'm interested in picking up like an enema kit. What do you use? And yeah, exactly. That's super disarming. In that case, um, my boyfriend was like, um, I don't have one. And, and I'm like, oh, okay, well then why don't we go shopping together? Indeed. So it's disarming. It kind of 
you know, for, for people who are observant, like if Vera and I were dating in that circumstance and I were to say that, I'm pretty sure Vera would be like, could you stop fucking hitting me with a clue by four? I get it. God, <laughs> Jesus Christ on a cross, mother of Mary. But it's, it's, there are ways to be delicate about this because for some people, especially if they're inexperienced, especially if, it's one of the first times that they're having anal intercourse. You you don't want to make a big deal out of Santorum. You don't want to be like, Jesus Christ, it's like a fountain of shit. And you don't want to do that because. <laughs> yeah, shaming your partner is never a good strategy, right? That is, that is not a good way to get a return pass to your fuck buddy. Like That is that is a great way to get that access tonight. And also to put. It's actually a great way to make somebody have a complex about exactly. bonding. Like, they're they're not going to want to do it again. Them. Yeah, it is. So yeah. don't do that. Don't be the shithead that does that, please. Like I understand. Please, I'm not accusing you of that at yes. all. You sounded really, you sounded really like mm-hmm. you were being very kind to your partner. Yes. And you didn't want to make, actually make them feel bad. And props to you for being that perceptive and realizing that this could be a an emotional situation for your partner. So mm-hmm. I really give you a lot of credit for approaching this in such a mm-hmm. sensitive way. And thank you so much for writing in with the question. Yeah, it's a wonderful question. We do have an episode about anal 101. So if you ever just want to listen, yeah. to, you know, listen to that episode together sometime, you know, yeah. Hey, I'm interested in learning more about anal and there's a wonderful episode of a show that I listen to that focuses on it. Maybe we could listen to it together. And then what do you know? We've solved the problem there too, Indeed. but this is, this is a common thing that people run into. So just handle it delicately. Don't, don't, don't treat it like clue, you know, it was you in the bed, not water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't do Seriously. that. Um, again, you don't want to traumatize. You don't want to shame somebody for natural body emissions, especially when you're putting something in an area that doesn't actually really kind of belong in there in the first place. So, no, yeah. so anyhow, thank you for your question. It, it's again, it's a common question, but it's a good question to get into always go over every now and then because people struggle with how to discuss delicate situations in the bedroom. If any of our listeners have their own suggestions, or maybe you have comments about the content that we covered in today's episode, hit us up on our contact page. Frailattraction.com has all of the information to get into touch with us by email, by anonymous submission form by ask.fm by twitter links to our telegram groups and telegram announcement channel so many ways to keep in touch and to interface with the show next week is a special episode it is our official 100th episode insert applause um we're actually really excited for i know we we sound super just like eh but no, it's <laughs> we are super duper excited for it. I know we keep kind of putting it off, but the issue is is that there's a lot of work that goes into this one. Um, we want to make it kind of really special. We want to talk about life, future, the past, the present, and other forms of tenses that verbs can have. And kind of where the show is going to be going in the future and some kind of stuff we're going to be announcing. So it'll be a good show and it's going to be an important show, but we're, we're giving it the time it deserves to actually be not crap. So yeah. there you go. And to be quite honest with Vero traveling with me having just life, 
Um, unfortunately, we just couldn't record it today. So, and this was a much better episode to record today. Anyway, <laughs> it's a very important. It's 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 talking about active listening is always good. And I, I'm Mister Communication. I'm I'm down to clown. I've got all the time in the world for that. But next week we're gonna have our 100th episode, and it's going to be. It's gonna be. It's gonna be good. It's. We made it, everybody. Thank you for all of your support over the past 99 plus episodes. It, it really means the world to us. Certainly does. Um, other things that sort of, you know, mean the world to us are Patreon. Wow, what a great segue that was. <laughs> I, I, It's almost as if I used to do this for a living. <laughs> Ugh, I was not good at it. So Patreon helps Vero travel to more conventions. It helps the show to, you know, get more research materials, to, to have more access to do more things, to interface with you on a wider level. And we have different tiers in our Patreon, not the crying kind, the, you know, latter kind. One of which is that we do shout outs at the end of every episode. Uh, one such patron of ours is Miss Hyde. Now, Miss Hyde did a streak for the Tigers, which was this massive fundraising sort of scheme at the London Zoo back in August. And in this, Miss Hyde raised money in order to run around the zoo naked, in order to raise money to protect the natural habitats of tigers in the wild. You can still donate to her Just Giving, justgiving.com. Her username is Hanaconda. It's like the snake, but with a H at the front. Furries, I know we just got like 10 cons and a lot of fundraising and we raised a lot of money for science, but this is a good cause too. So please consider giving, you know, what you might be able to give to protect the natural habitats of tigers in the wild. That's pretty effing cool. Or, you know... Maybe you're looking to commission some art. Maybe you're looking for some comics. Maybe you're looking for that new growth macro artist to scratch that itch. Well, Snares is there for you. Snares has a Patreon of his own, patreon.com slash snares. And it is a one-stop site for commission and artist information where you can find comic projects, page updates on his comic, and all of his stuff snares is a fantastic artist and you should definitely give him a check or maybe you're in the written mood you know vera was talking earlier about how he was into the literary porn when he was growing up and i mean you know it's it's the fandom has a lot of great authors as well as artists zerpolis is an author in the fandom he has recently published a short novel with the thirst and hell press it's titled The Pride of Parahumans. You should check it out on Amazon if you're interested in it. Or go to his Patreon, patreon.com slash Zarpolis. If you're a fan of speculative fiction, sci-fi, kind of high tech in space, Zarpolis might be the author for you. Or maybe you're just looking for a new friend on Twitter. Maybe you're looking for somebody on YouTube to talk about fandom news and geeky stuff. Myron has your back. Follow his Twitter at Myron the Fluffy for pictures and daily red panda dog ramblings. And there you'll find a link to his YouTube, where again, he talks about video games, geeky stuff, and the fandom at large. That's going to do it for this week. Next week, it's our 100th 
episode extravaganza. <laughs> Until then, I'm Metrico. And I'm Vera the Science Collie. Be well. Thank you.